John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Dealing this morning with the subject of Christ the successful Savior, or we could call it the ironies of redemption. The ironies of redemption. Now that you have John 12, keep your finger there and look back quickly to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. A very familiar verse. Most of you probably have memorized verse 15. You remember, context is the fall of Adam and Eve. God is here in the garden. He is pronouncing his curse on Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now John chapter 12. Now begin reading with verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. One of the lessons that comes from that familiar passage in Matthew, you remember where Jesus asks his disciples about their, the opinion of the people about him. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you remember they answered, some say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. One of the lessons we learn from that, when we observe that those opinions that they had of Jesus were very favorable opinions, we learn that it's very possible to have a very good opinion of Christ, and yet not good enough. A very high opinion of him, but not high enough. And that really is the kind of thing we learn when we come to this passage. I think it's a curious and interesting thing 
to survey the opinions that people have of Christ. And I mean the opinions of people who claim to follow Christ. And I think if you went around to people who profess to be Christian and asked what do you think of when you think of Christ, maybe your first answer would be that, well, he was a great moral teacher. He taught us a great ethic. Others would say he gave us the best example. He was a model of how to live. You may get a lot of answers like that, I think, first, before you get anyone to say first that he is the Savior of sinners. And I think even of those who think of him as the Savior of sinners, when they do think of him on the cross, they generally, it seems, have an idea of Jesus on the cross as some poor, pitiable figure who hangs there in helplessness and somehow or another sort of deserves for us to believe on him so that he can somehow, if we would cooperate, save us. In other words, they sometimes do see Jesus on a cross, but when they see him on a cross, they rarely think of it, it seems, in terms of glory. But it's just that view of Christ that neither John nor Jesus will allow us to entertain at all. For Jesus, his death was anything but a defeat. His death was his highest victory. And I want you to notice how he introduces that subject in verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, when he says here, his hour, that's a subject that rings a bell if you've been reading through the Gospel of John. Several times throughout the Gospel, we find a reference to his hour, my hour, his hour, the hour. There's a big difference here, though. Up until this point, the hour had always been spoken of in the future tense. You remember in chapter 2, Jesus says to his mother at the wedding at Cana, my hour has not yet come. And just to give you a couple of examples, look back to chapter 7 and verse 30. Chapter 7 and verse 30. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8 and verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. But here we get to chapter 12, and we find in verse 23, Jesus saying, the hour has come. And when we get there, we find, if nothing else, we see that Jesus is again speaking of what we saw the other day, that he came here not by accident, he came with a mission. He came with a purpose, and that purpose, he says, will be accomplished in his hour. And when that hour comes, he says, that will be the climactic moment of my accomplishing of the Father's mission. In that hour, I will succeed in doing what the Father has commanded. So he came with a purpose. He came with something, something to do, and he says he will do it in his hour. And what we find as we read along is that this hour that he's speaking of is the hour of his death. In fact, 
That really is what's alluded to back there in these other verses we read in chapter 7 and 8, isn't it? No one laid a hand on him yet. Why? His hour hadn't come yet. They wanted to arrest him, and we find certain attempts for that to happen. But we see God sovereignly intervening, and it didn't happen. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. And we see, even with that, some ominous indications that his hour is the hour of his death. In other words, Jesus is saying that his theology and John's theology is that in dying, Jesus does not meet with defeat. In dying, he accomplishes that to which he was sent. This is his finest hour. This, in his death, is when he will accomplish the Father's will. Now, notice how he illustrates that in a parable in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, we have a garden in our yard at home, but you are looking at probably the person who knows less about gardening and growing things than anyone else you know. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I think I understand what Jesus is getting here, getting at. A fresh, green, ripe seed doesn't produce a yield. If the seed, however, dies and dries out, and if you plant that seed, that seed, the dead seed, will produce a yield. Isn't that what he's saying? Those of you who know more about this? Okay. Well, that's what Jesus is saying is true about me. He's emphasizing here, it is not my life, but by means of my death that I will produce a great harvest. Amen. Just as when you plant this dead, dried out seed, it produces all this grain. So, not by my life, but by my death, I will produce a great harvest of those who will come to life in Christ. By my death, he's saying, I will achieve my mission. I'll accomplish that which the Father has sent me to do. This is my finest hour. And in fact, he tells us in verse 23 that in this hour, this hour of his death, it's the hour in which he is glorified. Notice how he says that. The hour has come that the, man, that the Son of Man should be crucified. No, it doesn't say that. His language is, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, in fact, we find the same thing in chapter 17 and verse 1, when Jesus begins his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And we all know this is the eve of the crucifixion. He is speaking of his death in terms of glorification. Now that's another theme that we find running through the Gospel of John. And that's the theme of Jesus' glory. We find it really all through the Gospel. This theme of the glory of Christ. We find it in the prologue. You remember the incarnation of Christ. The Word was made flesh. Dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We find it in Jesus' miracles as well. He performs these great miracles, and in fact, John calls them the signs. They are signs of his glory, and they're great displays of his glorious person. 
But there's more to it in the Gospel of John than just that. It's not enough just to say that there's this theme of Jesus' glory running through the book. There is something which is a bit of a paradox that has been observed about John's Gospel as back, I think, as far as Augustine, uh, maybe as back as far as Origen, I, I, I forget which. And that is what has been called Jesus' humble glory. Jesus' humble glory. In other words, the great manifestation of Jesus' greatness is his stooping to serve those who have no claim on him. We find that, for example, in Jesus, well again, his incarnation. There was no call for him to do that. There was no need for him to become man. For the God of eternity to be made a man. That's a, that's a hu humiliating thing. That's a humble thing. But yet it's a glorious thing. We find the same thing in Jesus' miracles when he stoops to, to help those who have no claim on him. Sinners who, who don't deserve the attention. He stoops and lovingly serves their needs. Of course, in the very next chapter, chapter 13, we have the great illustration of this very point where Jesus wraps that towel around himself and he goes and washes his disciples' feet and he teaches us so plainly that greatness is found in humility. Greatness is found in service to others. But most of all, the greatest demonstration of Jesus' humble glory, of course, is the cross. That Christ, as he is introduced to us here in the, John's Gospel, the Word, the Eternal Son, that this one should be found as a man is enough. But that she should go all the way to the cross and die as a criminal, that is the most humiliating thing you can think of. Yet Jesus describes it as his glory. It's a humble glory and his greatest glory, he says, is seen in his most humiliating service and that of dying as a criminal. And by that death, he intends to save those whom the Father has given him. And so it is not just a humiliating thing, it is a glorious thing. And so we have Jesus' humble glory. Now this principle of success through death, which he illustrates in this parable of the grain in verse 24. In verse 25, Jesus applies to all of his followers. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is a familiar theme in Jesus' teaching. And the theme simply is, you must choose at the outset. If you're going to follow me, understand at the outset, there's a cost. This, of course, is the message that modern preachers like to forget. We love to say, Jesus says, come unto me and rest. But we like to forget to say, take his yoke. But Jesus says, if you're going to have me, you must have me in this capacity of who I am. And that is not just as a fire escape, but as a Lord. If you would have the life that I would give you, you must lose your life. Jesus spoke of this, I think, most plainly in Matthew chapter 10. And he speaks of it in terms of the sword and the division that he brings. Don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And he speaks of the division that comes within families and friendships because of Christ. But he says, that's the price you must be willing to pay. 
We have a man in our church who, before his conversion, was a very worldly man. He said he would come home drunk and all the rest of the things. And he said, my mother, who is very much a critic of Christianity, my mother, he says, loved me a whole lot more when I used to come home drunk than, I, than she does now. One day I bumped into her in the parking lot of the grocery store. And I started to strike up a conversation, trying to be friendly. And it wasn't long before she started in on me. She's very much a critic. And she said, you know, you know what, Fred? She said, I started reading. I wanted to see what the Bible was about. And I started reading through the New Testament. And, and she said, I got to where Jesus said, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Now, what kind of a thing is that for Jesus to say? That's terrible. I thought, Lord, she put the verse there. I said, Lois, you know what that verse means? What? I said, you know that verse does not mean that Jesus came bringing a literal sword, don't you? I said, Jesus never carried a sword, did he? She said, well, no. I said, you know what that verse means? She says, what? I said, that verse means that if a man chooses to follow Christ, his mother may well hate him for it. But you see, that's precisely the price Jesus says you must be willing to pay if you would follow me. And what Jesus is saying here is that you can't kid yourself. You must enter my kingdom through death. I establish my kingdom by death, and it's only by death that you can enter my kingdom. Now, you can't make atonement, he says, but you must enter into the spirit in which atonement is made. Amen. Or you can't be mine. But it's just this, Jesus' death, that he says he's willing to endure. And in this, his hour, he says he'll be glorified. And in fact, in verse 28, he says this is a matter of glory, not just for the Son, but for the Father also. Father, glorify your name. In, in, in other words, was it a display of glory for God to become man in the incarnation? Yes, it was. Was it a display of Christ's glory to perform those miracles we mentioned? Yes, it was. But it's as though God is saying here in verse 28, I have glorified it, I will. Also, just hang on. What I'm about to do, he says, is more glorious still. Amen. Now, how is that so? How is it that in Christ's death, God is glorified? How is this a moment of Christ's glory? Well, he answers that in verses 31 and 32. First of all, this is a matter of glory in Christ's death because this is the hour in which the world is judged. Notice verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, Jesus had come to the world as God's representative. We have him described that way in Several terms in John's Gospel. He is the Son. He is the Word. He is the Light. All of these things point to the fact that He came as the Father's representative. And coming in the Father's name, He came to make atonement for sin and to proclaim forgiveness. But when He came, we find, of course, in the next few pages of this book, tell us all about it. When He came, the world wouldn't have Him. 
And instead of accepting him and recognizing him, they rejected him and they murdered him. And it's one of the great ironies of history that when the world condemned Jesus, it condemned itself. It passed judgment on Jesus as a criminal and in doing that showed itself to be the greatest criminal. In their condemnation of Christ, judgment was passed on them. And their sinfulness in that act was most clearly displayed. But there's obviously more going on here than just that. Now is the judgment of this world. And when he says that, Jesus is obviously not speaking simply in terms of their condemnation. Remember, he's speaking in terms of glory. He's speaking in terms of success and triumph. And we understand that then when we consider that Jesus came not just as the Father's representative. He also came as the representative of men, God's sinful and rebellious creatures. He had come as the sinner's substitute. Remember, he was the innocent one in the place of the guilty. And in so doing then, when he dies, he not only demonstrates men's guilt, he bears men's guilt. And this is the whole struggle of verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now all of that is very reminiscent of the garden, isn't it? In Gethsemane. Now is my soul troubled. In the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now what's the problem here? Well, the problem is obvious. Jesus is faced with two alternatives. He can fulfill the mission to which he's been sent. But in so doing, endure all of that which lay ahead of him. Or he could forego it all, but in the meantime fail to accomplish the Father's mission. And he wants very much to fulfill the Father's mission. Jesus did not come simply as one under orders. He came out of love for the sheep himself. He wants very much to see them saved. But seeing the cost of it all, he very naturally shrinks back from it and trembles, he says, with great anxiety. Father, now is my soul troubled. Now, what is it exactly that's troubling him? Well, the first guess, obviously, is the great physical sufferings that were awaiting him. And I think that's alluded to in verse 32, when he speaks of his being lifted up from the earth. The Bunyan Conference, I don't have to spend time laboring the fact here. You know that speaks of his crucifixion. The very next verse tells us that. And I don't have to go into detail explaining what all was involved in crucifixion. You're familiar with that. The Romans had crucifixion down to an art, a cruel art, but an art. And they had a way of putting a criminal through a process of torture that could put him in the most agonizing pain, prolong so that he would not die soon, but prolong his agony throughout this whole process of killing him. And I'm sure that's part of Jesus' struggle. And there's little question that that's involved, but I'm sure also that there's a lot more. Jesus has already described his death in terms of substitution in verse 24. That's this parable we saw earlier in this matter of this grain falling into the ground, dying and bringing forth a yield. 
We found the same thing the other day when we were in chapter 10, you remember, where Jesus says he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, what he's saying is that by his death, others will receive life. There will be a great harvest that comes out of his death. As a result of his dying, others will come to life. In other words, it's what we've seen already, and that is his death was the death of a substitute. And in his death, there was a satisfaction of justice. Christ died as the sinner's substitute, bearing their judgment in their place. And again, this is one of the great ironies of history. When men condemned Jesus to death, they considered it the death of a criminal. And it was as a criminal that Jesus died. But it was not simply men in injustice who were at work. It was in the just government of God that Jesus died as a criminal. He was the innocent one dying in the place of the sinner, bearing the sinner's judgment. And this is what troubled Jesus. He's looking ahead at dying as a sinner under the wrath of God. And this is what is troubling him. His death was that of a penal substitute. He was the just one dying in the place of the unjust. He was made a curse for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is what we like to say at our church was that great exchange where we go and we meet him at the cross and as it were lay all of our sin on him and he willingly takes it all and takes all of the punishment for it. And in exchange he gives us his righteousness. And in this we find the true cause of Jesus' struggle. The wrath of men, his creatures, that's awful enough. But it is nothing in comparison to the awful wrath of God. To feel the omnipotent arm of God smiting in wrathful judgment against sin. To bear our sins in his own body. To be made a curse for us. That's the prospect that lay ahead of him. And this is what brings about the struggle that he's speaking of in verse 27. This is why he is troubled. But it's just this he says that he's willing to do. For this purpose I came to this hour. And proceeding with it, our judgment was fully meted out. Now is the judgment of this world. And so it is a glorious hour. But there's more. Jesus explains that this is a glorious hour, not just because the world is judged, but secondly, because in this hour, the world's ruler is overthrown. Look at verse 31 again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now I said this... We could call this the ironies of redemption. We have another irony here, don't we? Who would have thought that in this satanically inspired plot to murder the Lord Jesus, Satan would be defeated? Who would have thought? That's ironic. Who standing there would have thought, yes! Ah, Satan's getting it now. No, he wouldn't have thought that. 
We would have thought that this was Satan's ultimate victory. We would have thought this was Satan's final victory. In this great struggle for men's souls, we would have seen the Son of God hanging on a cross and we would have thought, oh no, he lost. Way back in the garden. Way back. God said to Satan, I'll send a deliverer. <laughs> You'll bruise his heel, but you're going to lose your head in doing it. Isn't that what Colossians chapter 2 tells us? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in his crucifixion. Who would have thought? Who would have thought on the cross Jesus was making a public spectacle of, of Satan? <laughs> we would have thought that Satan was making a public spectacle of Christ. We would have thought that Satan and all of his imps were laughing and having a party. But here we find that the irony of it is that this is Christ's victory over Satan. Because in his death for sinners, he is breaking sin's grip and Satan's tyranny over men. He is taking their judgment for sin and in so doing releases them and ransacks Satan's kingdom, setting free all of his people. As a result of his dying, the ruler of this world is cast out and men and women from all over the world are rescued. Now, we know Satan's activity has not yet been completely brought to a halt. He's still the prince of this world. It will be brought to a halt, and we can all agree that at some point in Revelation chapter 20, that is spoken of. But already, he says, notice, now, already in history, he has been dealt the death blow. So this is an hour of glory, he says, because now is the judgment of this world, because now the prince of this world is cast out. And thirdly, this is the hour of glory because it is the hour in which the world is saved. Look in verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. I have no doubt that there's more irony intended here. If I be lifted up, what kind of language is that? That sounds like he's talking about honor, doesn't it? In fact, we have a modern chorus that's been written from this verse. Lift him up, lift him up, lift the name of Jesus higher. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me, lift his praises to the sky. The language here is just that. He's using the language of honor and of glorification. But the irony of it is that it's obvious not only from the context, but from John's interpretation in the very next verse that Jesus is speaking of his death. And this is precisely what Jesus has been driving at all the way since verse 23. His death is not just the pathway to his glorification although we find some aspects in which that's true, but that's not what he's dealing with here. His death is not the pathway to his glory. His death, he says, is itself his highest glory. 
This is His hour. This is the climactic moment in which He accomplishes the Father's mission. This is His glory. And I'd like to say that it's His glory from our standpoint also, isn't it? What is it that endears you most to our Lord Jesus? Is He most dear to you because He's a great teacher? Oh, He's a great teacher. You'll never find a better teaching anywhere. Is He most dear to you because He's a great model of how to live? Well, that, that makes Him wonderful, and He's a great model, and He's the one we are to follow. But that is not what makes Him most dear or most glorious to us, is it? What makes Him most dear and most glorious to us is that He is a Savior of our sin because He died on the cross bearing all of our judgment and there absorbed all of the wrath of God in our place that He willingly took the Father's bruising in our place. That's what makes Him most glorious to us. And when we find the Apostle Paul saying things like, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that, don't we? We don't look at that and just simply say, well, well now, now Paul is teaching us there that, that the cross is, is the only basis of our forgiveness. I mean, we realize that he's saying that, but when we see Paul saying words like, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, well, we understand that and we, we don't just recognize abstract truth. We enter into all of the emotion that that statement captures and we say, yes, this is what makes him glorious. And when I want to brag, this is how I'm going to brag. Christ has taken all of my sin. He's absorbed all of God's punishment for me. This is what makes him glorious. And I say, even in heaven, when finally we see Christ standing in all of his glory, what will be most striking to us is that he stands there a lamb as it has been slain. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with Fanny Crosby's hymn, I Shall Know Him, I Shall Know Him, Redeemed by His Side I Will Stand. I Shall Know Him, I Shall Know Him, by the print of the nails in his hands. I heard a preacher one time mock that song. He said, that's really kind of a silly song. He says, we get to heaven, what's going to be striking to us is not, not wounds. It's going to be the glorious presentation of Christ. I thought, you know, I'm sure... When we first see Christ, we're going to see one glorious demonstration that's going to all but overwhelm us. But what is going to be most striking to us is that we will recognize that it is this glorious one who bears in his body the marks of our redemption. And what will be most striking to us is that this is the one who bore our sin. And we'll know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. Yes. He's resurrected in glory. He ascended in glory. He's reigning in glory. He will come in glory. But what makes him most glorious to us is that he has taken the judgment of our sin. This is his hour. This is what makes him glory. There's more here than just that, though. 
the picture that Jesus presents of himself in verse 32 is that of himself on a cross with his arms spread eagle. And I don't think I'm reading too much into the text to see in that a picture of a Savior embracing the world. Jesus has already spoken in terms of a harvest, verse 24. All through the Gospel of John, we've been getting reminders of Jesus, hints of Jesus' worldwide saving work. We find that in the famous text, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. God so loved the world that He sent His Son to save it. Chapter 4, we find the Samaritans coming and believing on Christ, and they come with this wonderful remark at the end of it, this is the Savior of the world. He's the world's Savior. And in fact, what has triggered this whole discussion here in chapter 12, you remember there's the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, verse 19. The Pharisees are upset about all this. Hey, look, the world's gone after him. And John picks up in verse 20, and it's as if to say, yeah, let me tell you, there were certain Greeks. They said, we want to see Jesus. Philip says, oh, Greeks? Uh, he goes and tells Andrew, and, uh, and they go tell, tell Jesus, and Jesus says, look, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all peoples to myself. This is not a Jewish thing. This is a cosmic thing. All of the world to be brought to me. And this, again, is one of the great themes of John's Gospel, that Jesus is perfectly suited to be the world's Savior. Isn't this the whole foundation of gospel missions? Isn't this why we can take this message of the gospel that we preach here to any corner of the globe and say, look, the same Savior that saves people in Pennsylvania can save you in Timbuktu. He's the world's Savior. And so we have another touch of irony. Jesus goes to a cross, dying. And I'm sure, I am sure, that those who put him there on the cross were thinking, wow, we've ended it. We finally got an end to him. We won't hear any more out of him. And even if a few of these misled, ignorant people want to continue to, 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 to follow him, at least now that he's dead, he won't be able to attract any more followers. <laughs> but what they did not consider is that he is a sovereign savior and he will accomplish his mission whatever they do. You put him to death if you like, but in so doing, watch him succeed. I am a good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I've got sheep everywhere that I'm going to get. And I'm going to bring them all in. And as John says it in chapter 11, there are children of God all over the earth that he will bring in by his death. And notice, Jesus does not say here that I will leave it to the efforts of those for whom I die. No. This is a much too important work for that. Jesus does not say, well, I'll do this much, but now it's up to you. 
And if you'll bring yourself here, I'll save you. He doesn't say, I'm going to die and I will render you savable. He doesn't say, I'm going to die and in my death I'll make a general provision and if you can make your way this far, then I'll do the rest. No. He doesn't say, this is a hypothetical thing and if, you will opt, if you'll just do this much, then I, I have a provision here waiting for you. No. That's not what Jesus says at all. He says, I'm not leaving this to them. This is a work the Father has given me to do. Notice he says, if I be lifted up from the earth... I will draw them. This is not something that's left up to them. And notice he says, not just some of them. All of them. All peoples I will draw to myself. And you see what he's saying here. There is a guarantee in my death that those for whom I die will surely be brought in. There is this pledge that they must be saved. Now many people have interpreted this verse, I know, and I'm sure you've heard it. That Jesus is telling us here that when he is exalted in Christian preaching, then men and women will be saved. As true as that is, that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying here that if you exalt me in preaching, people will be saved. What he is saying here is that there is in my death a drawing effect. There is in my death the guarantee that these people, all of them, must be saved and will be saved. All of them. And I don't say might be saved. I will draw them. And the Arminians have the stupid audacity to say that we limit the atonement. <laughs> Like Spurgeon said, you, you, did, did, you asked them, did Jesus die so as to save anybody for certain? Oh, no, no, they'll say. He died for, for anybody if, and then follow a list of conditions. No. He says, we say that Jesus died so that all of his people will be saved, must be saved, and cannot run the hazard of ever being anything but saved. I will draw them all to me. There is in my death the guarantee that they will be drawn. I will draw them. I will draw all of them. And it will be certainly done. They can have their atonement. We will not forsake ours for the sake of it. This, he says, is the hour of triumph. This is the hour of my glory, the hour of my success. They will all be saved. Isn't it interesting that this is the verse Arminians like to use? They don't read it carefully enough, I don't think. All of them will be saved. You see, because it's a matter of justice now, isn't it, that they must be saved? Jesus died for them. God cannot condemn them. Those for whom Jesus died must be saved. Or God would be dishonored. And what our Lord describes here in this passage then is the whole flow of history, this side of the cross. Our Lord is not, as we suggested at the beginning 
some pitiable figure hanging on a cross, helpless and, and somehow deserving that somehow maybe somebody believe and, and, and kind of help him. He is a mighty, successful Savior. And in case you're wondering if he really will succeed, go back to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign on the earth. John chapter 12 and verse 32 then is one of those verses which takes us to the very end of history. Jesus' mission has not failed, will not fail, and it cannot fail. No matter what Satan or anyone else does to obstruct it. He is a successful Savior.